Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. Uh, Have you ever wondered um, what, how the Apostle Paul would have communicated his Trinitarian theology to his Roman audience who converted out of paganism? Uh, Does Paul even have a Trinitarian theology? Does he teach that? Well, my guest today, Ron C. Fay, has written a book arguing that Paul does hold to a Trinitarian theology, and he details how he would have, or how he did, unpack that theology for his uh, Roman, his Greco-Roman audience. And so he is here on the podcast today. Um, Ron, it's good to have you. Thanks. It's great to be here. So first, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm a nerd, and I'm okay with that. Uh, I have, I enjoyed college. I enjoyed school. So I basically triple majored in college. I have degrees in physics, math, and classical Greek. Uh, then I went ahead and got my master's at Divinity and I did my PhD in New Testament studies. That's my academic background. Uh, the thing that makes other people hate me is the fact that I read over a hundred pages an hour, uh, with very good recall of what I've read. So while other people struggle through books, I can pretty much fly through them. I average reading about five books a week. Uh, on top of teaching 7th and 8th grade Bible and teaching uh, grad school full-time. So uh, I'm a dad. I have three kids, um, which means I go to a lot of soccer tournaments on weekends because my sons play travel soccer. They're on the same team. And my daughter is into art, a very creative person. Uh, I'm obviously married. My wife teaches AP physics. And uh, that's where I am right now. That's uh, What else do you want to know about me? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a that's really cool. I wish I could go through a hundred pages an hour and have a level of recall. I, <laughs> I, uh, I, I not only it not only does it take me four hours to read a hundred pages of an average of of an average book, but uh, I usually have to read the same book multiple times to really master the, the material. So, yeah, I I definitely am feeling so, some of that envy. <laughs> <laughs> that I would get, I would get so much more learned if I, if I had that that superpower. Yeah, my interest tends to be in New Testament studies, where you don't do just straight reading, because you're working through a passage. So uh, when I work through a passage, I'm reading four or five different commentaries and a couple of articles, and you're only paying attention to the passage you're actually working on. So rarely do I do the brute reading you would do in philosophy or apologetics or uh, some of those other areas or even theology. Uh, so when I actually worked on my book, I had to do some of that uh, straight reading for the Trinitarian stuff. And when you read like Moltmann, you have to slow down. He's brutal. I mean, Germans say that they learn English so they can read him because reading him in German is so awful. Uh, you know, Jürgen Moltmann, he's just a brutal read. And so that was one I really had to slow down for. But in general, I can kind of move through through these books pretty quickly. Okay. So, uh, could you tell the audience like the the basic 
I think I pretty much tipped the hand in the introduction, but like <laughs> uh, maybe you could give it in a in a different or even a better way of the basic premise of your book, The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Romans 8. What does the book hope to accomplish? Well, the question I was looking at uh, originally was when I first started doing my research, uh, wow, I don't even want to talk about it, about 20 years ago, uh, looking at Paul uh, and how he communicated the Trinity. I'm very much... Uh, I, I've done online apologetics occasionally, just specifically on the Trinity from an exegetical standpoint. Uh, I ran into some different groups who disagree with the Trinity. Uh, the Christadelphians, I don't know if you've heard of them. They're more uh, an Australian type of group, uh, very anti-Trinitarian. Uh, and I had a lot of battles with some of the major people in that, I don't know if you want to call them denomination or group or whatever they are. Uh, and so I really went wanted to go back and find where does Paul talk about the Trinity? It's very obvious in John, you know, uh, Kostenberger and Swain did a great book on that. Uh, but where does Paul talk about the Trinity? And you see some of these little places in uh, first Corinthians, a little bit in Ephesians, uh, places like that. But I wanted to look at the most overlooked member of the Trinity in the evangelical church. Cause as everyone knows, we believe in the father, son and Holy scripture. And so the spirit tends to get left out. And so I wanted to look at the spirits. Well, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to look at Paul. You have to go to Romans 8. That is the chapter on the Holy Spirit for Paul. Uh, so if I'm going to do that, the, that was one part of the question. The other part of the question was everyone deals with the Jewishness of Paul. But Paul didn't write to Jews. He wrote to, at best, mixed audiences. So Paul wouldn't just write from a Jewish background. He'd have to be writing into a Greco-Roman background as well. And there's some assumption that they'll know the Old Testament scriptures, but he also has to recognize that these people come from a pagan background or, you know, magic if you're in Ephesians, uh, you know, in Ephesus or uh, the different uh, temple structures like Artemis and all that stuff. So if he's writing in Romans to Roman audience how would he communicate what he believed? He wouldn't just do a Jewish background. He would have to be communicating into a Roman audience, into a Greco-Roman background. And Paul was very educated. And so I think that he would have that background to write into it, uh, especially since he was a diaspora Jew himself. You know, he's not from Jerusalem, though he was trained there. He's from outside of uh, Israel. So he would understand some of that thought process. So Going into this question, I was thinking, Paul is not going to write Romans the way he writes uh, to Jerusalem or the way he would speak in Israel. He's going to write and direct his thoughts in a different way. So if Paul believes in the Trinity, how would he communicate that to a Roman audience? That was kind of the question I wanted to bring, um, you know. Paul was Jewish, but how would he communicate it to a non-Jewish audience? And so my first step was, okay, what does God, Theos, mean to a Roman audience? And once you start to realize how loose an understanding of that term they had, you can start to see how it was easier for Paul to begin to communicate uh, his concept of God, the monotheistic God who was in three persons. Yeah. <clears throat> um, yeah, I, I've always I've always thought that Romans was like a, a mixed uh, a mixed background. Well, 
in what in part because it's written in Rome. There's a lot of Gentiles in Rome, but also because he also he seems to be like concerned with especially going through you know Romans nine and ten and eleven. He seems to be concerned that Jews are concerned. Hey, you know we're being rejected because you know the, it, God is rejecting Israel and yet He's accepting all these Gentiles. And you know with the the natural branch and the and the Grafting branch, so I always, th- I always thought, you know, you've got Paul seems to he seems to know that he's got Jewish brethren there, but he's also obviously because it's Rome, he's got a lot of he's got a lot of Gentiles there as well, uh, Gentile Christian converts, uh, and so he would he would have he would have to write with like both in mind to make sure that both types of audiences got the 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 points that he. Go, that he goes into into the the I think it's fourteen chapters. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it's sixteen. Chapters. It's 16. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. So um, so in chapter in chapter two, you you go into a survey of Greco-Roman conceptions of deity. Uh, in the introduction, uh, you said this was important because knowing how the Gentiles in the Roman Church understood divinity would have factored in uh, not only into how they inter- uh, how they interpreted Romans uh, Paul's epistle but also how Paul would have gone about writing the epistle so um, how what are like the different concepts of, of deity in the greco-roman world and how how do these affect Paul's Trinitarian audience could you go into that a little bit for our audience yeah sure so uh, as I said earlier, theos, the Greek term for God, is really loose. I, I mean, in our modern world, we say God, and we have a very specific, if we can put it this way, mental object in mind. Uh, you know, if, if you're Judeo-Christian, you have the Christian Jewish God in mind. If you're Muslim, you hear it, and you're hearing Allah. But if you're Greek or Roman, and you say God, it can mean all sorts of different things. Uh, the emperor was God. Uh, you had a god in your home, the god of the hearth. You would have Jupiter or Zeus, same guy, uh, who was the god, the, the god over all the other gods. Uh, so there were all these different things. Hercules was a god. So how can all of these different, completely different types of beings fit under this umbrella term? And I think Paul intentionally uses this elastic term to be able to build out what he means by God. So if you talk about God to a Greek, they would ask you to explain, what do you mean? Is it a great hero? Are you talking about some human hero who became so great he ascended somehow to divinity, or it turns out he's actually, you know, one of Zeus's offspring that Hera didn't know about? Uh, Or is this... Uh, a demigod, someone who actually was a partial god to begin with, you know, half human, half god. And I, I know those two different categories can blur, uh, but the Greeks would have understood them differently, hero versus demigod, even if the hero turns out to be a demigod. Uh, and then the question of apotheosis, you know, you have an emperor who's alive, and when he dies, he becomes a god. He ascends to the godhead. He somehow magically transforms into becoming a god, uh, even though he wasn't during life necessarily. And then you have some emperors who are worshipped as gods during their life, uh, which was 
in in our world we would consider that a religious issue but for them it was actually political so one of the ways augustus spread empire uh, when he was the emperor of rome was outside of rome part of uh, anyone else joining the empire is they had to join the imperial cult so you can keep your gods but you have to include the emperor in your worship and that way you're officially part of the empire so persia could keep you know uh Araman and all their different deities but they had to worship the emperor and the gallic gallic tribes uh the germans they had they could worship their own deities but they had to worship the emperor and we started to see that in some of the official correspondence between the roman generals and the court at rome where they would say you know oh we've had problems fighting this group uh we're meeting for a treaty we told them they had to worship augustus and they were like okay and I'm like so now all they have to do is worship augustus send tribute to rome and we'll leave them alone and rome would write back and say that's great make them build a temple that's so big by so big so they put their resources and time into that and so those types of things were used as a political form of conquering tribes and uniting the world even though for us that would be considered religious and so there's this blurring of the lines between politics and religion in their world that we don't necessarily see in ours or at least we don't think of it that way uh there often is a blurring of politics and religion in our world but we don't think of it in that category for them it's one thing if you join a church you're also joining a, sp a specific political party as well uh so in uh, the whole honor shame and uh, patronage concepts come into that but i didn't delve into that too much in my book but that's a lot of the backdrop and so if you start to use that language those are the things people will be pulling on if you say god you have to define it because it's very non-specific uh to a roman or a greek from that point of, from that point in time yeah how do, how does paul uh unpack how does he uh, describe what he means by theos? I think he does a great job of not. I know that seems weird, but I think he intentionally leaves it loosely defined so that he can, instead of defining it in terms of being, he starts to define it in terms of action. And so God the Father becomes separate from the Son and the Spirit because God the Father does the sending. And he uses a lot of sending and command language with respect to the Father. And then the Son and the Spirit have different functions. And so they're united as God because he, folk, he uses God language for all of them, but they're functionally different. And by not necessarily defining the relationship, he ends up defining the relationship. I know that seems counterintuitive, but he uses action and motion to define the relationship. Uh, the father is the one who sends, the son is the one who dies, and the spirit is the one who remains. Uh, and by doing it in such a way, uh, he's able to kind of skirt the typical language a Greek or Roman would look for, and instead pulls them into more of the Jewish concept, so that all three of these different beings are seen as one God. Whereas Rome had a lot of these triads, uh, you know, you'd have the Capitoline triad, the big three up on the hill in Rome, uh, who all somehow worked together, but were very different. And yet in Rome, if you had the same job, they would make you the same God. So, uh, for example, uh, Jupiter was the great God. 
and Zeus in, in Greece was the great god. Both of them were the sky gods. Uh, but they combined them kind of. You know, the, the Greeks would understand Zeus and Jupiter as basically the same guy. And so you have Jupiter being called um, Zeus Pater, you know, Father Zeus. And then eventually he became called the sky god. But then also he's called the god of rock. Well, why in the world is he called the god of rocks? Well, because part of the assimilation process was making Zeus uh, and Jupiter both the god of oath. The, the fact that you would swear by them. Well, in Roman society, to show that you had an oath and that you were going to hold on to it, you'd swear by a rock because that's unbreakable. And therefore, Jupiter was also the god of rocks. And he, you know, that's how he became the god of oath, oaths. And so then Zeus had to then be assimilated into that concept as well. So even though Zeus was the sky god and then Jupiter became the sky god, Jupiter Zeus also became the god of rocks because it's a god of oath. And so you start to see those assimilations. So Paul uses that, if I can put it this way, wishy-washy type of understanding to pull the Greco-Roman concept into more of a Jewish mindset. That there's only one god, but somehow this one god has multiple aspects inside of him. And he slowly builds out the personality of father, son, and spirit so that they're seen as separate people without using that type of Nicene language. Yeah. In chapter three, uh, you talk about, I found this part uh, really uh, interesting because um, I didn't know anything about the, the Roman view of adoption, but you talk about like how the Romans would have understood uh, Paul's language uh, of God adopting us as his son because uh, of a certain way that the Romans did adoption in their culture. Um, can you get into some of that material for us? And what relevance does this have for the Trinity? It, well, I think the relevance for adoption language in the New Testament is extremely important for Christians as a whole. Uh, we tend to kind of misunderstand, I shouldn't say misunderstand, we tend to underemphasize uh, the significance of this and, and how we relate to God uh, and how we relate to Christ. Uh, we, I know the big thing in Christian theology right now is the king language for Jesus. That's become a, a big deal in a lot of different writers. Uh, but we need to not neglect adoption language as well because that establishes the other aspect of our relationship. Uh, but in Jewish adoption, we don't really know a lot of how they did adoption. We know that they had it, but we don't know anything really about it. There's nothing very descriptive, uh, especially uh, pre-first century. Uh, you know, anything BC, anything before Christ, we really don't have much. We know they practiced adoption, and that's about all we know. Uh, it seems to have been very rare, uh, and it was done in cases of, I guess, you know, family eradication, if I can put it that way. There are, there's nobody left in the family, so they get adopted into a new family uh, because bloodline was such an important concept in in Judaism. I mean, you you trace your bloodline so you know what tribe you're a part of, et cetera, et cetera. In the Greco-Roman world, bloodline actually doesn't mean that much. Uh, it does to a certain extent because you can kind of count on your family, but family is just as apt to betray you in Rome as it as you know, non-blood was. So it wasn't. It didn't carry as much. So a lot of adoption was, uh, if I can put it this way, politically oriented. Uh, the idea was, I want to carry on my family. And I don't necessarily like the people that are immediately in my family. So I will pull someone from somewhere else 
make them my son and they will have the right to inheritance and to carry on my name and to even act in my name now. Uh, because Roman family structure was so different. You have the paterfamilias, the head of the family, uh, the male head, and everyone was underneath him. And he had a lot of legal rights that they wouldn't necessarily have. Uh, and so being adopted would entail a major difference in legal status. You're erasing your former ties to your former family and supplanting them all to become part of a new family. And the only person now that can command you directly is the paterfamilias, the head of the family. Uh, it, it almost fits to have a kind of mob understanding, you know. Your godfather is now your own, the only person you pay attention to kind of understanding. You're part of that family no matter what your blood was before. Uh, everything else falls to the side. Uh, the reason it's significant for Trinitarian speech, I'll get there in a minute. Uh, what starts the connection is salvation language. So when people become believers, they become adopted into God's family. Now, we think this means, okay, we are now all the same. We're all under God. Uh, everything's great. It means we're part of this undefined family structure. But there's a lot more to it than that. In becoming God's sons, men and women, boys and girls, everyone who exists who becomes part of God's family becomes a son. Because no matter your gender, you are given the right to inheritance. That wasn't necessarily the case in the Roman world. You know, the, the true-born sons had the right of inheritance, and then the adopted sons had the right of inheritance. And the father could list those however he wanted uh, in terms of inheritance. And the daughters didn't necessarily inherit. They could, but usually they didn't in the Roman world. But Paul specifically says men and women are now sons of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now, Christ would be the firstborn, which would mean he'd get the first pick. And in the Jewish world, he would get two-thirds inheritance and everyone else would get one-third inheritance. But the point is that Christ would be the firstborn and everyone else would be his brother and everyone else would have the right to inherit. That's significant because we become, uh, okay, I'm starting to mix my metaphors here. Uh, it's significant because it places us under Jesus' care, but also with the right to inherit from God. And so Jesus, instead of becoming, if I could put it this way, just our God, he also becomes big brother. Not in the 1984 sense, but big brother in terms of he's the oldest, he looks out for us, uh, he distributes the inheritance, and we all function underneath him. Moving that into the Trinitarian world then, well, how does that fit within the Trinitarian mindset? How does all of this come together? Well, the Father, God the Father, is a paterfamilias. He's the head of the family. Christ, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is the firstborn, the one with the major right of inheritance. And all of us line up underneath him or tangentially to him, I guess you could say. So we have those two relationships there. Well, how does the spirit fit into this? He's the one who does the actual adoption. So he is, I know this is a weird way to put it, he is both the lawyer and the adoption papers. Uh, because if you don't have the spirit, you're not part of the adoption. If you don't have the spirit, you're not part of the family. Which means he is both the one who brings you into the family, like the lawyer, but he's also the one that proves you're part of the family, like the adoption papers. And I know that's a weird way to put it, that we have, you know, 
paterfamilias, older brother, and adoption papers. But that's kind of how this picture works to understand how we fit in. The Spirit is the one who is the seal on each believer to show they're part of God's family and seals the adoption in. And that's how adoption language fits in with the Trinitarian understanding of Paul. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Um, fascinating stuff. And also, um, it's it's a it's it's heartwarming when we think about how God um, incorporates us into His family when we were enslaved to sin in in depth. And and you talk about how sometimes uh, in in adoption um, in the Roman world like a person could be like really in massive debt or they could have been in slavery. And if they were adopted by some, you know, uh, upper class person, they would have just been completely freed from all that. Yeah. It makes a huge difference in the life of an individual. And even if in adopting them, you can change the status of their family. So they're married and they have kids, et cetera, et cetera. All of them now are in a completely different family. Their legal status is completely reset. Everything changes. Uh, it's a it's a great metaphor for understanding how salvation actually works. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, and as I and as I was reading that, I was just like, "Wow." Um, in in chapter four, uh, chapter four is titled "God and the Son and the Spirit." You wrote, "Quote: Paul focuses on God the Father as the one who determines the actions in Romans eight. Yet God acts through His agents in giving salvation." His Agents are Jesus, his son, and the Holy Spirit. The son and the spirit both accomplish many different functions for God in Romans 8, most linked with salvation. You said this chapter will describe how the son and the spirit interact with sin, recreation, salvation, each other, and God. First, this chapter will discuss the role of the son and spirit in dealing with sin, including their relationship to the law. Confer chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, end quote. What is the role of the Son and the Spirit in dealing with sin and the law? Huge. <laughs> uh, not a simple question. Uh, there are, you know, books and books written on just that issue. Uh, Romans 7 really, uh, if you can read through Romans 7 and perfectly understand it, you've beaten most people uh, because it's a tangled mess. But what you can pull out of Romans 7 is that uh, the law is not sin, but it shows sin. Just simplistically, that's what it boils down to. The law itself is not sin and it's not evil, but it shows sin and it can show what evil actually is. And that's kind of the baseline for beginning to understand the role of the Son and the Spirit. So the Son frees, it, it opens the possibility for people being freed from both the sin and law. Uh and I've got to be careful how I talk about this. It's not that we cannot be judged by the law, but rather that the law can no longer obtain in the life of a believer because the son has already fulfilled it in our on our behalf. So I know that's kind of a strange way to put it, but it's kind of the language that Paul uses. So when Jesus lived his life and never broke the law, and at the end of his life sacrificed himself he took the law and he fulfilled it. No more could be done in order to have the law fulfilled. Uh, all the law and the prophets in terms of writing, so the, the Pentateuch and the prophets and all the writings pointed to Christ. 
you can especially, I know this is weird. I've been teaching the minor prophets lately. You can really see how the Old Testament builds toward Messiah. Uh, if you take the really large view and just look at the themes of each book, uh, you know, you have creation, the fall, and then the rest of the Old Testament seems to be God saying to Israel, follow me and stop creating idols. I mean, that's like most of the Old Testament right there. Follow me, stop creating idols. Uh, and if you do this, I can finally bring Messiah. If you stop following idols, I can finally bring Messiah in. And so you have this whole history of Israel that builds up to this point with, uh, you know, Moses, then Joshua, then the judges, and then the united kingdom, and then the divided kingdom, and then exile because they keep screwing up and following idols over and over again. And you have the divided kingdom, I'm sorry, then you have the exile. Uh, during the time of exile, everyone who was left, because, you know, the northern kingdom is gone. There's essentially no northern kingdom left. Uh, so the southern kingdom taken into exile begin to actually follow God. Then God gives them back their land. You know, Darius comes, he starts to let them go. Uh, the Medo-Persian Empire allows them to resettle Jerusalem. They begin to build up uh, Jerusalem and the temple. And under the new priests, they actually follow the law. They actually start having jubilee years. They actually start doing what God's called them to do, sacrificing uh, following the, the dietary laws, following all the cultural issues, finally becoming what God envisioned them to be. And so for 400 years, we have silence. There are no prophets. And so what does that finally build to? John the Baptist and Jesus. So once the Jews actually are Jewish, instead of being pagan, God can show them what Messiah is. So now that they have followed the law and they know what the law is, God can fulfill the law through the person of the Messiah, who is the anointed one, which is prophet, priest, and king. The entire Old Testament had, was, you know, actually prophet, Moses, king, David, uh, and then the priests who actually led all the services. And Christ comes and fulfills all three parts of that. So he fits all aspects of the law. In fulfilling the law, he also is able to defeat sin because sin itself is what the law is meant to do. You know, if you define sin in a biblical sense, it's that which causes a broken relationship between man and God. That's what sin is. It's that which breaks relationship. So getting rid of sin causes reconciliation. So the role of Jesus was to reconcile man and God. That's how the law is fulfilled, and that's how it also fits in terms of reconciliation. Now, I know this is going to be weird. I'm going to pop back to Genesis 15 for a second. Uh, in Genesis 15, we have the establishment of the covenant. And I know you asked me about Romans, but I have to do all this back work before we get there. In Genesis 15, we have the establishment of the covenant between God and Abraham. And in this very weird thing, the story that we read, and most people don't understand, God has Abraham cut all these sacrifices in half, puts Abraham to sleep, and then a floating torch goes through the middle of it. And what in the world does that mean? Well, it's establishing a covenant between a great nation and a small nation. God is the great nation. Abraham's the small nation. And typically, the, the covenant would go like this. I, the great nation, tell you, the small nation, what you're going to do. If you don't do it, you're in trouble. 
And to show that you accept this, you, the small nation, walk between the animals cut in half, and you're saying, if I don't fulfill the covenant, may I be torn in half like these animals were. But instead of having Abraham walk between the halves, God goes between the halves. And so God is saying, if you break the covenant, I will be torn in half. So when Jesus dies on the cross, he's fulfilling Genesis 15. Israel for 1,600 years broke the law. So God took the punishment by having himself broken in half by dying on the cross. Fulfillment of the law. All the way back to Genesis 15. That's what Jesus was doing. This is why God died, because God promised he would if Abraham broke the covenant. And of course, Abraham's children broke the covenant. Which means Christ's death fulfills both the covenant and then, in, in extension, fulfills the law. That's part one. The spirit, then, is the second half of that. If Christ has fulfilled the law, and the law no longer obtains, how do we work against sin? How do we establish reconciliation between us and God? And that's where the spirit comes in. So Jesus wiped the slate clean and set up the road for reconciliation, but he didn't bridge that gap fully. The Spirit does that by speaking God into us and helping us communicate with God. So Christ's death satisfies the covenant, but the Spirit establishes us as God's actual children. And so the defeat of sin is found in the cross, but the reconciliation is found through the work of the Spirit in the life of the individual. And that's especially what the first half of Romans 8 is about. Uh, death to sin and life in the Spirit. Because you can't be both alive in the Spirit and alive in sin at the same time because they're antithetical. If God truly lives in you through the Spirit, then you are moving away from sin. Not that you don't sin, as First John says, whoever claims to be without sin is a liar and the truth is not in him. So it's not that without sin, but rather your trajectory is consistently away from sin and toward God. And your life is becoming more and more holy as time goes on. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's like it's it's, it's your um, you're not it's your inclinations. Your inclinations is more towards the, the things of the spirit rather than the things of the flesh, even though you will screw up occasionally morally. Uh, from time to time. Or sometimes not so occasionally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, in, in chapter four, you write um, that the topic of re, uh, the re topic of recreation will come to the fore. Uh, could you go into that for us, the, the topic of recreation? Yeah. So it's recreation, even though it looks like it's spelled like recreation. It's not the same thing. Yeah, obviously. I, almost, I, almost, I almost said recreation a couple of times as I have these questions pulled up here. I'm like, I got to be careful not to say recreation. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and process is on the wrong syllable, and then you have to change how you actually say it. Uh, but yes, recreation. So one of the things scholars have noted, I, I know this again sounds slightly weird the way I'm going to talk about it. One of the things scholars have noticed about the book of Genesis is that it is written such that it is, uh, if I can put it this way, a repeal, not Genesis, I'm sorry, the book of Revelation. Revelation is written like a repealing of Genesis. 
so that it's Genesis in reverse, uh, such that you you know the, all the things that went wrong in Genesis become put right in uh, Revelation. And so if you read Genesis forward and then read Revelation forward, then you're reading Genesis backward and reading Revelation. Uh, it's like uh, everything goes backwards because, uh, you know, all the languages become one, all the languages and different people become one people. So the Tower of Babel is reversed and everyone begins to live back together again. And God, who had to remove himself, is brought back to live with mankind. So the Garden of Eden is reversed. You know, the, the fall is reversed. And the Garden of Eden is reversed. So recreation is the process by which we reverse Genesis, if I can put it that way. So when Adam sinned, his sin didn't just affect him and his children. It also affected the entire world or the entire universe. Uh, his fall is not just a spiritual issue. It's a physical issue as well in that everything continues to, to degrade, which didn't have to. And so death enters the world through sin. And I'm not going to get into did animals die and plants die before that, because it's not the point. The concept of death as a thing, as a fear, entered into the world. Uh, and, and Paul calls what is the last enemy? Death itself is the last enemy, the one that Christ overcomes. Well, that's why death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, because it's not just that uh, it's not death the end, but rather death the fear is thrown into the lake of fire as well, because we know that forevermore we live with God. And so recreation is the repealing of Genesis, the reversing of Genesis. And so all the evil that Adam's sin has done, and that, let's be honest, humans continue to do to the physical world. Uh, all the different evils we've done gets repealed by God. Uh, and Paul talks about he, eagerly awaiting uh, the revelation of the sons of God uh, so that creation itself can be healed. Uh, all of creation is crying out to be healed. How long, oh God? And it wants to be in the pre-Adamic state, the pre-Adam state. So Adamic meaning Adam-like, the pre-Adam state. And it is through salvation and through reconciliation with God that the world is able to be recreated, put back in the pre-fall uh, column, I guess you could say. So when we read about the new heavens and the new earth, it's not so much that God tears it all down and restarts it, but rather God renews it and refreshes it. And that creation is, you know, God hits control, alt, delete. He still has the same computer, but the operating system is now actually functioning correctly. So God control alt deletes. That's what recreation is. The, the repealing of sin, the pulling back of the effects of sin, and the reconciliation of all things unto God. Yeah, I like the way that you put that. Um, N.T. Wright talks about that a little bit in uh, his book, Surprised by Scripture, how a lot of, uh, a lot of us Christians, we kind of think that God's going to take this universe like throw it into the trash and then just make another one in his place. But what it actually is, is that he's going to transform this, this universe. He's going to make it better. He's going to make it to where things don't die and decay. And because, you know, if you study astrophysics, you know, things are running down and eventually we're going to reach heat death. So he's got to transform it. If, if it's going to be an eternal kingdom, I like, I like to compare it to the, um, 
to the to the body, the human body. Um, how you know the body we have now is it's growing old, it's going to die and and decay. And but as we see with Jesus's resurrection, he doesn't give us a new skeletal structure. He like puts new flesh on the pre-existing skeleton, flesh, flesh and and and, and organs and meat that will be imperishable and incorruptible and last forever. That's why Jesus's tomb was empty. It was the, it was a transformed body. And so that's what I kind of see is, was what's God going to do with the universe. He's going to, just like he's going to transform our bodies rather than create a new body ex nihilo and put our souls in that he's going to uh, reshape the universe. So we're going to have like a resurrected body and a resurrected universe. Yeah, I very much look forward to being able to actually grow a mustache to go with my beard. You know, I'm hoping <laughs> my new body will be able to do that. You know, <laughs> yeah. Um, so also in your um, in in this part of the book, you say that uh, as a summary of the previous two sections, uh, the relation of the Son and Spirit to salvation will be explained as it is presented in Romans eight five, and. Also, this chapter will analyze the overlapping functions of the sun and spirit. Um, just just get into a little bit uh, of this for us. Obviously, the uh, we want people to go read the book. Um, so we're not going to unpack all of it here. But as I always do on these book interviews, we are going to give them a little bit of a taste, a little bit of a sample of their content uh, so that... Um, if they're interested, they can go to Amazon or christianbook.com or Barnes and Noble and uh, get more. But uh, what are the, what is uh, a little bit, give us a little bit of a sampling of this part of the book. It was actually kind of where the argument really came to the forefront for me. Uh, so looking at that section of Romans specifically, it's actually a little bit later on. Um, So uh, I'm looking at verses 9 through 11 is where it really, the Trinitarian nature of Paul's argument really hit me. So you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. As soon as I read that, spirit of God, spirit of Christ, Paul is making this overlap. There's this overlap between God and Christ. And it's very clear that he's talking about the one spirit both of God and of Christ. So what does this mean? There's something special there. And that really screamed Trinity to me. Uh, and so in reading that, I had to go all of a sudden go back and go, Paul is making some argument I'm missing. Paul has some depth here I'm missing. So what exactly am I missing? And I started to realize that some of the functions of the Spirit and the Son overlapped. Uh, in Paul's theology, not just in Romans 8, but in Paul's theology in general. And in the Greco-Roman world, if functions overlapped, they became assimilated. So Apollo was the god of the sun, and Helios was the god who uh, drove the carriage that the, the sun is the one wheel on that carriage as he goes through the sky or the chariot. And so eventually, Helios and Apollo became the same god, and, and he became called Helios Apollo, the, you know, the, the golden god of the sun. And they just assimilated into the same person. But the sun and the spirit 
have stayed have stayed separate in Christian theology because even though they have overlapping functions, they do it in different ways and do it for different reasons. So one of the things I noticed is that Romans 8 talks about the spirit as an advocate. The spirit uh, goes to God on our behalf and presents our requests. But Paul also talks about the son doing that. The son goes to the father and defends us. Well, if they're both our advocates, what's the difference? How, how is there some sort of difference between them? And there actually is. So the son functions more like a defense lawyer in terms of they're innocent because I've taken their place, is what the son says to the father. Whereas the spirit says, have mercy. You know, the spirit talks with words that cannot be, talks for us when we cannot express ourselves. The alaleo, the, the unspeakable words, uh, the groanings of the, the human heart, as it were. And so when the spirit intercedes for us, he does so not saying, um, I am innocent, but rather saying, I need help. And so even though there's an overlap, there's still a little bit of difference there to see a functional separation between the two. And so there is some functional overlap, but enough differentiation to see how they work hand in hand rather than necessarily um, tripping over each other, if I can put it that way. So in terms of unpacking it, salvation is a Trinitarian concept, and it's not a valid concept unless all three aspects of the Trinity are at work. Um so to give an to set it aside a little bit, Calvin said there are three tenses to salvation. I was saved. I'm being saved. I will be saved. Wait, 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 wait. Oh, hold on. Yeah. Uh, you, you, yeah, your, your, your screen kind of paused and okay. your audio went a little bit wonky. Uh, uh, start from okay. the yeah, start from the beginning there. So you Calvin? just kind of yeah, uh, okay. yeah. Um, uh, after you after you said that salvation is a trinitarian concept yeah. then you, then your audio got just a little okay. bit wonky so like i'll go back issue so it's a trinitarian issue uh and i'm going to give an example from calvin and and tie it in calvin says i was saved i'm being saved i will be saved those are the three tenses of salvation but i was saved at the cross because of christ's death I'm being saved now because of the work of the Spirit, and I will be saved when God declares me innocent at the final judgment. So those three tenses of salvation are actually a Trinitarian statement of salvation. And each one has each person in the Godhead has a separate function in our salvation. But if we're missing even one part, we're not actually saved. So if we don't accept what Christ did for us, then we weren't saved at the cross. If the Spirit's not working in us, we're not saved right now. And if ultimately we aren't declared innocent at the final judgment, then the Father, then we're not saved by the Father at the time of judgment. And so salvation is inherently Trinitarian, which means that the functions of each person of the Godhead are necessary for us to be saved. And that's part of what I'm trying to unwrap and unpackage in, uh, in that chapter. When I'm talking about the overlapping functions of the Son and the Spirit, I'm talking about how they work in terms of our salvation, how they work in terms of our relationship to the law, uh, and how they work in terms of us being adopted as 
sons of God, men and women as sons of God. All of that comes together in that chapter. Okay, yeah. Um, now, I know you didn't want to talk about uh, this. I, I asked you over, over Messenger, and you said that's not really my area of expertise. But as you, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, this could be like one argument for why the Trinitarian is an essential doctrine of Christianity. Um, I, ha I have plans sometime in the future. I don't know when I'm going to get to it, but I want to get some content up on the website that goes into arguing from the Bible and, and maybe some philosophy as well as to why the essentials are the essentials. You know, usually when people are, are usually when you, when you're asked, you know, why is this essential, but you can disagree on say the Arminian Calvinist debate or the, the, the days of Genesis. Why is the, why are, is it okay for you to be wrong on that, but not on this subject? If you're wrong on this subject, you're going to hell. Actually, I think um, you misunderstood me. That's not the question I was talking about. That's how I got into this in the first place is because I believe in the essential nature of the Trinity. Yeah, but I was thinking if 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 this if this economy is inherently trinitarian and it ha then um you know then if God is not a trinity salvation falls apart Christianity falls apart. It does. Yeah. And I think so Romans 10:9 um if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved. Uh kind of a, encapsulates it. The thing we miss is if you confess that Jesus is Lord is a different thing than saying Jesus is my master. Uh, Lord is the New Testament euphemism for God's name. And because I've taught enough Jews, I will never say God's name because I know for them it's disrespectful. But instead of saying the Tetragrammaton, instead of saying God's name, they would say Lord, Adonai. Uh, and so when it says Jesus is Lord, it means confessing Jesus as God. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is God. And so right there in that little nugget, Paul's saying, unless you're Trinitarian, or at least Binitarian, I guess you could say, you're not saved. If you don't have a concept of Jesus as God, you're not saved. That's one of the essential truths of being a Christian. And if you understand Jesus as God, you need to understand the spirit is God as well because of his separate functions and the fact that he is the one. If Christ had stayed on earth, there would be no spirit in our lives. Now, that's what all the gospels show us. So Christ left in order that the spirit would come and be with us. So if the spirit is fulfilling the functions of Godhead, the functions of Christ and has a separate personality. How is this not God? And so just, I know that's a, a very tiny argument, but the idea right there is found in all of the New Testament writings of the Trinity. And I firmly believe if you don't have a Trinitarian understanding, you're not actually a Christian. And I'm not saying you have to understand the Trinity because let's be honest, nobody understands God. We're, we're, we're finite, he's infinite. But if we start to wrestle with the nature of God, and we're able to wrestle with the concept of Trinity and get at least a tiny understanding of it, then I believe that is how we attain salvation, not through knowledge, but through worshiping the triune God. You know, practice is first order theology. And in your worship, you need to worship in a Trinitarian manner. And most people do. Uh, when we pray is, I think, one of the most intensely Trinitarian moments. Uh, we pray to the Father 
in the name of the Son, through the power and conduit of the Spirit. Every time you're praying, you're Trinitarian. You shouldn't be praying to Jesus because Jesus modeled praying to the Father. And everything the Son does is reflected towards the Father. And I know a lot of people say, dear Lord Jesus, blah, blah, blah. But we're actually supposed to, and Jesus modeled, praying to the Father. And we pray in the name of the Son. And you could almost say that the Spirit is our cell phone. That's how we're able to connect to God is because the Spirit's in us. That's how we connect. So prayer should should be an intensely Trinitarian uh, moment for each one of us. And in the same way, worship should be Trinitarian as well. Uh, that's actually one of the projects I'm working on now is, okay, you're a Christian and you're Trinitarian. What does that mean for you practically? So I'm writing a book on the practical application of the Trinity to the average churchgoer. You know, what does it mean to be Trinitarian? And honestly, I've been working off and on on this for like, I think it's seven years at this point in time. My academic work keeps getting in the way. But I, I think it's really important for every person in the pew to at least have a little bit of an understanding of the Trinity. And again, we'll never understand God. He's infinite. We're finite. But understanding the Trinity moves us in that direction. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll be on the lookout for that uh, for that other book. And maybe I can have you on uh, back on this podcast and we could talk about that book. Sounds good. Um, so I want to talk next about uh, pushback. Have you gotten any pushback from this uh, on this book from your critics, like, um, you know, Unitarians or, or even... You know, just just anybody, really. Um, and if so, what did they say, and how would you respond to them? The only real—I haven't had any major criticism of it yet. It hasn't been out for very long. Uh, but when I, I published a short article uh, on it, uh, gosh, 10 years ago, 14 years ago, something like that, I presented—originally had this idea. I presented it as a paper at a conference— uh, I was told to write it up, and I published it in a, a collection of essays in Brill that uh, Stanley Porter edited. Uh, don't look this, it up. It's really expensive. Oh, was, it, was this ETS? <laughs> yeah, I presented it at ETS. I wrote it up and submitted it for the Pauline Studies series that uh, Stanley Porter edited. Um, it, so it's in, I think it's Pauline Theology. I don't remember exactly which one it is. Paul's Theology, I think, is the name of the is the name of that volume. Um and the only real issue I had was, do, have, you, have you heard of the name James D.G. Dunn? Huge name in New Testament studies, major scholar. Unfortunately, he passed away yeah. uh, last year. Uh, but he was kind of the person I was oh, writing yeah. against. Oh, I, so, did not, I, did, I didn't know that he died. I hadn't heard anything uh, about yeah. him. Oh, that's a, that's a surprise. Yeah, he died right at the, I think it was right at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, uh, he's actually a really nice guy. I've only met him once, but he, he was a good guy, major scholar. Uh, I wrote some of what I wrote against him. Uh, I don't remember if it's at the very beginning where I talk about how uh, Niels uh, Dahl calls Dunn's exegesis. Oh. Uh, I think it's... Oh. Typically, do you remember? Uh, well, uh, we, we we just had an issue. Uh, we had like just 30 seconds of silence there. Ah. Anyway, I was saying that uh, Dunn is, yeah, he passed away, unfortunately, major scholar. But uh, Neil, Niels Alstrip Dahl, in going through some of Dunn's exegesis, uh, called it typically Aryan. 
that some of the steps that Dunn made were Arian understandings of Paul. And so I wrote to correct some of those takes by Dunn. And so in terms of that, it's actually been very well received. Uh, people have, have looked at some of the exegetical steps that I've made and have said that they were solid, they made sense, uh, it, it, that uh, my refutation of Dunn should stand. Uh, now, whether that continues on in the Academy, we'll see. I think the big issue is the fact that I looked at it from a Greco-Roman perspective, and the majority of scholars still view Paul through a Jewish lens. So it might take a little bit of time for people to catch up. Yeah, what was that last part you said? Um, we're, we're starting to have some connection issues. This podcast is almost over. I, I'm praying that we have <laughs> strong connections for like the last, last five, then for just like the next five minutes so we can wrap up. Uh, what part did you last hear from me? Um, like the last, the last few words of that, of that oh, sentence. Okay. Uh, I don't even remember what I was saying. Just that, uh, there hasn't been a lot of pushback. People have kind of gone along with what I've said so far and thought it was a pretty good refutation of done. But I think it's because most people are still working from the Jewish Paul instead of looking at who Paul wrote to. And because I'm looking at the recipients and that Paul would write into a Greek world, it'll take a little bit of time for people to catch up to that. Okay. So uh, before we before we wrap up, um, well, first, um, do you have any projects in the work besides that uh, besides that um, that Trinity application for the average churchgoer book you mentioned? So I've got a few things I'm working on. Uh, I am an editor of a book called Milestones in New Testament Scholarship. Uh, we put out a book on John about two, three years ago, and we have the book on Luke Acts is coming out this November. Uh, I've already started doing essays for the, the volume on Paul. That should come out, uh, we're thinking November 2023. So we're going to try to put one out every two years, but the pandemic stopped us. Uh, I'm also, my actual main area of focus uh, is the Gospel of John. So I'm working on a book on uh, Jesus as uh, the Jew par excellence in the Gospel of John, showing how the I am statements, how the uh, different aspects throughout John are building towards showing Jesus as the perfect example of what a Jew is supposed to be. And so his fulfillment of the law and everything else John is writing a very positive statement on who Jesus is as a Jew and therefore a negative statement on who the Jews are now. The fact that they haven't lived up to what God has called them to be. And so that's the direction my scholarship is currently working in. Nice. Um, so, and also, also, do you have like any website, YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook page where people can like find you and keep up with new stuff you put out? Yeah, I do have Facebook, uh, but it, I don't do – I'll put some of my academic stuff on there from time to time, and people are more than welcome to uh, interact with me. It's Ron C. Fay, F-A-Y, so nice and simple. Uh, I, so that's the name I publish under, so that's the name I have up on my uh, Facebook page. But I usually don't do a lot of online stuff. I don't blog or anything like that. I have enough things to do with coaching and having three kids and writing and working two jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Um, so thank you, um, Ron C. Fay, for being on the Cerebral Faith podcast and talking about this uh, fascinating subject. 
thank you for having me. I always love talking about the Trinity. So do I. Um, um, and by the way, this is a perfect time for me to uh, plug what I'm going to be doing. Um, after, uh, As you guys who follow Cerebral Faith know, I've been doing a, a series of live streams on the Cerebral Faith YouTube channel called Cerebral Faith Live. Currently, we're going through Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, I'm exegeting uh, chapter by chapter and going over some major subjects. But after that, I'm going to be giving a series of talks on the the doctrine of the trinity uh you know the on and the deity of christ and so that's why that's kind of how I, that's how i got uh exposed to ron's book um because i was uh, talking about it on facebook and he left a comment uh, about it and i was like okay I'm, i'll i'll check this out um, i'm doing some reading about the doctrine of the trinity uh and the deity of jesus uh sort of as a refresher course so this material is fresh in my mind as I go into the presentation, but also I'm hoping to learn some new things. And I definitely learned some new things from uh, Ron's book. Um, you can you can check out Ron C. Fay's book. It's called Father, Son, and Spirit in Romans 8, the Roman reception of Paul's Trinitarian theology. Um, that's Father, Son, and Spirit in Romans 8, the Romans reception of Paul's Trinitarian theology. That's the the book that we've been talking about on the podcast today, I will leave a link to the Amazon page in the show notes. Um, the Kindle version is $17.99. The paperback is $27.95. So if you're, a, if you're a Kindle guy like me or if you're a paperback reader, it's available in uh, both of those formats. Can so, I say a quick thing? Yeah. If, if you go to fontespress.com, they actually have it for less than it is on Amazon. Oh, Wow. So the actual uh, publisher has it for less, though I do not know if they have the Kindle. But if you want the physical copy, it's cheaper through the actual publisher. Yeah, well, I was I was able to get an EPUB version from the publisher uh, in exchange for this interview and uh, and a review. So I think they might have they might have they might have. they had they had a they had an electronic file to give me. So I would I would infer that they would have an electronic file to sell. But uh, yeah, go, go over there, guys. So th I want to thank you again, Ron, for coming on the podcast. And thank I want to thank and I want to thank you guys for listening to the Cerebral Faith podcast. And uh, I want to give a shout out to my patrons: Zach Miller, Slam RN, James Gadomsky, Andrew Melnick, Michelle Minton, Christopher Rogers, Nathan Hamilton, Edwin Liu, Jordan Hampton, Brandon Whitaker, and David Parrish. Uh, and if you would like to support this ministry financially, go to www.godbless, and I will see you next time. And keep using the brains that God gave you.